The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 1st, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump spoke in Indiana today to reveal the details of the deal that kept workers at a carrier air conditioner plant in Indianapolis. Now, the backstory was pretty amazing. About a week ago, I was watching the nightly news. So he is 70. But they were doing a story on Carrier. And I say, wow, that's something. I want to see that. And they had a gentleman, worker, great guy, handsome guy. Maybe he saw a little of himself in that guy. And it was like he didn't even know they were leaving. He said something to the effect, no, we're not leaving. Because Donald Trump promised us that we're not leaving. And I never thought I made that promise. Not with Carrier. I made it for everybody else. I didn't make it really for Carrier. And I'm saying to myself, man. Now at this point, what I should do is cut to a clip of Donald Trump exactly saying Carrier won't be leaving, just exactly making the promise. But there is no need to do that because Donald Trump provides his own clip. It's pretty cool. And then they played my statement. And I said, Carrier will never leave. But that was a euphemism. No. The idea that this plan's details would be laid out, that was the euphemism. There were no details on this afternoon. We were told that Carrier would be getting $7 million in tax breaks from the state of Indiana. That doesn't make sense in terms of the value of the deal. I don't disbelieve it. But Carrier or their parent company, United Technologies, foregoing a business decision that they said will save them $65 million for $7 million in tax breaks. And then the conference went into President-elect Trump veering into praising Hoosiers coach Bobby Knight's record, once again touting his beautiful wall with a door, just like any other rambling campaign event. So what we need, what we really need, is for the media to stay on this, to track how UTC's government contracts go compared to them in past years, compared to other companies in upcoming years. They need to develop sources who can tell you if government contracts are going to UTC in an odd way. We need to keep track of all the carrier employees, maybe not just at this plant, maybe at other plants, to see their overall total sourcing to Mexico, to see the other plants in nearby places that couldn't be helped by this one-off deal in this photo op plant. It's pretty unlikely that this will be replicable in other plants. But I do want to point out one thing. Let's be really, really generous and allow that this deal was in fact a quid pro quo, that United Technologies was convinced was in its financial interest, that the overall savings, plus, like I talked about yesterday, the lobbying value of the ear of the president, it worked out for them. Somehow they made that economic calculation that this was all worth it. Even if this is on the up and up, right, gauzed up and hyped up by the Trump machine, but on the up and up, even if that's the case, think about what Trump just said. Why did this all happen? Because Trump saw a citizen on a loathed network news show. I won't say which one because I don't want to give him credit because I don't like him much. I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't like him. Not even a little bit. And what did this media who are terrible at their job do? They called him on his promises, and we need the media to do that. And if it's not on the up and up, we need the media to follow up on that too. 
I've just been compelled. I've been riveted, manufacturing term, by this carrier story. So what I've done is I've invited a fellow, literally a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. If you know them, they're this pretty much pro-business think tank. My guest thinks this is a fine one-off deal, but one-off does not a strategy make. And in the spiel, I guess I just have the concept of negotiating with wealthy capitalists on my mind. So I take you into the shark tank. Mike, we're not illegally allowed to call it shark tank. I never said shark tank. We'll visit the eel bed. I've got some ideas and the eels are going to get pitched. But first, what's the deal with the carryover effect of the carrier deal? So the carrier deal, even before the quote-unquote details were announced, was roundly criticized by some people who you might have suspected would be critical. Bernie Sanders said United Technologies took Donald Trump hostage and won. That should make all workers across the country nervous, the comedian Patton Oswalt said. Again, Trump just completely caved to carrier and gave other companies a blueprint on how to steamroller him. And Justin Wolfer, as the economist, essentially made the case that Trump created a moral hazard. Every other CEO is going to pull this. But let's be real. This is not unknown in government. This is what businesses do. Press their advantage, gain leverage to get concessions out of government. It happens all the time. And that Might be the problem, says my guest, Aaron Wren, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Just let me get the lay of the land with you. Describe what kind of think tank. I don't want to be too much of a shorthand. What kind of think tank is the Manhattan Institute? Well, we are a a policy uh, research institute in New York. We're a nonprofit uh, you know, we would probably be identified as more free market uh, leaning, so probably typically identified as more center right. But we have scholars who represent a diversity of views on many on many points. Our scholars take independent points of view. And did you have an opinion on the Trump candidacy? I think he was extraordinarily effective, and I have said he is the you know greatest politician in American electoral history uh, as a result of what he pulled off. It's truly stunning. Oh, come on, Andrew Jackson. But did you endorse him? Did you write any articles saying, I'm a little worried about if he gets into office? Uh, I did not make any endorsements in the election. Did you have any worries about if he got into office? Certainly, he is less of a known quantity. Uh, the spread of potential outcomes is higher uh, with Trump than it would be with Clinton. So you wrote about Donald Trump and you talked about the mayor problem. Uh, what did you mean by the mayor problem? Does it show up in what we saw at Carrier? Well, what we see is that this is a president doing something that has traditionally be done, been done by mayors and by governors. Right. So you're at the Manhattan Institute, Bloomberg's mayor, uh, maybe Murdoch says, we're going to go to Newark. And Bloomberg says, no, stay here. We'll give you a tax cut, playing one municipality against another. The president hasn't traditionally been involved in economic development transactions with plants. That's something that governors do. That's something that mayors do. Uh, In a sense, it's almost small ball. And so Trump likes to talk about uh, thinking big in his book. So he needs to think big, uh, much bigger than just individual deals. Uh, Although, as I said, the carrier uh, deal specifically, I think, was a smart one to do. Uh, But in general, he needs to be thinking bigger. 
By the way, it's also true, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's possible that if the details ever emerge, and please journalists make them emerge, it might not be a good deal. Like from what we're being told the deal is, it seems like I would take it for the government. I mean, this has even been criticized for the government to pay $7 million. It works out to if there were indeed a thousand job job saved, $7,000 per job. But I figure... Oh, you know, prorated the length of people having those jobs, the tax value to the state uh, winds up covering that anyway. Well, there are a lot of incentive deals that are a lot more than $7,000 a job, I can tell you that. You know, I think if this is, this can't be the model for rebuilding America's economy going forward because it just doesn't scale to the national level. Uh, He needs to change policies and systems. He says that's what he wants to do. But in terms of showing a win and uh, basically making a statement right out of the gate, picking one or two of these deals is pretty smart. Yeah, but it seems like you're saying a couple different things. One is that, you know, good PR win, but I think you're saying that for the exact type of business that Carrier is, he can't replicate this again and again. And the other thing you're saying is, you know, even if he somehow could or try to, that's not the thing to help what ails America's economy. Right. I mean, how many plants are there in the United States? He can't personally get involved in negotiating deals with all these CEOs. There's just not enough hours in the day. And as a real estate developer, he has a project-oriented mindset. Uh, So I do think his professional DNA um, isn't necessarily as a systems change person. So that's going to be an adjustment for him going to the presidency where policies and systems uh, not just projects and individual deals uh, are what need to be done. So we'll, we'll see how he translates to that. It's very clear doing deals like this is very aligned with what he has done and likes to do. Uh, so doing one's good. The question is, you know, he needs to make that, that shift uh, as president to systems and policies. Okay, so you uh, tweeted out that regarding Carrier, the federal government is already deeply involved in individual deal with ind- individual deals with individual companies, which was in my intro when I said, let's be real. But do you think that is in general a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, I use the example of the Export-Import Bank. Yeah. Right now, you know, when Boeing wants to sell planes to someone, the federal government subsidizes that individual transaction. You know, I've said we need to get rid of the Export-Import Bank. That's my personal view. Uh, you know, right now, President Obama uh, is uh, negotiating with Cuba, trying to get deals for Google and GE. You know, we, we lobby foreign dictators to buy F-16s right, from our defense contractors. I don't know why that's a good thing, uh, but somehow saving you know, factory jobs is a bad thing. I would like to see less uh, involvement in individual deals and more focus on getting the competitive regulatory tax et cetera, environments correct that our businesses can compete and thrive in a way that is also good for the American worker. But he says he wants to do that. He does say he wants to do that. So we have to, you know, he, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. But will that change the facts of manufacturing in the United States? Uh, well, I don't know if it's manufacturing per se. There are many, many other things. We have agriculture. We have energy. Uh, there are probably a lot of service jobs. I mean, in fact, some of the service jobs that have been offshored in terms of call centers uh, haven't really haven't really worked well. So so they've come back. There are many things that we can look at other than just purely manufacturing. Uh, Although I don't believe this idea that we could be a purely post-manufacturing economy and somehow thrive over the long term uh, is is necessarily the right answer either, because other companies get in, you know, through manufacturing and then go up the value chain. We need to have a play in the manufacturing space. 
Uh, but we certainly shouldn't limit ourselves to thinking that manufacturing is a good job. How do we make service jobs better paying jobs? Yeah, and, and having the stature of manufacturing jobs and right. having the, uh, you know, the gauzy lens and the broad-shouldered man who's the home health care aide or whatever, having them as, uh, as, as valued by society as these uh, factory line workers are. Yeah, one of the things I all along criticize, I think we've devalued work. Mm-hmm. And it may go back to the 80s when people started talking about jobs. This idea that there are just certain jobs that aren't worth having. There are certain jobs that aren't worth doing. And it used to be in America that if you did an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, no matter what you did, you had a certain dignity in what you did. And I think just restoring the idea that people have dignity in their work is a big important part of this psychological change. Not everybody has a glamorous job in journalism or policy research. (laughs) There are a lot of people doing jobs aren't that glamorous, But there's tremendous dignity in that work, and we need to affirm that. Well, I would say a large part of restoring dignity is raising wages. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. But to the extent that we view these jobs as not worth doing, uh, that inherently, then we're we're not going to do that. So how do we change the psychology? You know, we made manufacturing jobs good jobs. Manufacturing jobs used to be pretty terrible, too. Right. And once the job pays $25 an hour, then, you know, Bruce Springsteen sings a song about it when it goes away. Right. What are the things that Trump could say about this carrier visit that would worry you? Maybe that would convince you he's not just using this as a PR opportunity, but he thinks this is the solution. Well, I mean, if, if he went out and, you know, if he, if he does a couple more factory deals, you know, great. But if, if, uh, if it becomes a sequence of deals, then we're not going to move the needle. Right? It's just that simple. And that's true on a lot of things. It's true on infrastructure. It can't just be a series of deals. There has to be substantive policy change. Although, Let's keep in mind, the man hasn't even been inaugurated yet, and he's already negotiating deals. That's pretty impressive. Aaron Wren is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, and he's the guy behind the Aaron Wren podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. The following are actual negotiations between Mike Pesca and Investor Eels. The Eels greenlight the projects at their own discretion. Any similarity to other marine life-based business programming is entirely coincidental. And now, The Eels. Executive Editor of Slate, Josh Levine. Hello. From the Slate Group, Catherine Weinkoop. Hey. And billionaire industrialist, Mary Wilson. Hi. And now your first contestant, Mike. Hi, Eels. I'm Mike, and my first idea is a short story. It's called Fly Day. Perhaps I'll write it in like a George Saunders style. Perhaps Philip K. Dick, depending on where it goes. Here's the premise. Everyone for one day in their lives can fly. They don't know when the day is going to be. Some people die before it happens, but fly day usually kicks in before you're 70. Some people sell their fly days to companies, uh, skywriting gigs, 
to fine-tune construction projects. There's even a company that hires people on fly days to do marriage proposals. I know what you're thinking. If you play in the NBA and it's your fly day, yes, the points count. Some people camp around bases of mountains for years so that their fly day could kick in. They could see the summit. Sadly, some people can't get out of going to work on their fly day. Some people are under anesthesia for surgery when the fly day kicks in. People fall in love with other flyers on their fly day, but then they fall out of love when they're grounded. It's a well-known phenomenon. Fly day, my short story, is told through the perspective of one flyer ready to have his fly day. There are so many psychological and sociological components to it. Suicide rates plummet. Before Fly Day, people really look forward to it, but afterwards they rise. Clean Air Act and pollution really becomes important to society that experiences Fly Day. People learn to hate crows. Crows are mean. So that's Fly Day. Do you have any deals with supermarkets where this will be stocked? And what kind of like eye level are we talking about for uh, the product? Okay, it's a short story and it would go in perhaps an anthology. It's sort of light sci-fi. Are people able to sell hours within their fly day? Yes. Yes. That's a good idea. I could explore that. That's right. So you could have two hours for yourself and one hour doing a gig. Great. Are there companies that are like creating excursions for your fly day? Okay. Just to be clear, my idea isn't fly day. It's I'm going to write a story called fly day. Right. But like. Yeah. Oh, I can find two. Still. Right. Exactly. Yes. Is it very clear to everybody? I mean, is it the kind of thing where you wake up and you know that you can fly that day? It's your fly day, but other people might not necessarily know, or is it like there's a little icon above your head? No, like you're in right. Sim City look, or something. Look, this isn't magic. You just have the ability of flight. Every once in a while, a baby comes out of the womb, and that's his fly day, and he doesn't even remember it. So, how many people have their fly day? I know you're going to ask me next. I was preparing for your questions. There are about four million people born each day, or have on average over the last you know seventy years. There are three hundred something million in the United States, so about ten thousand people are having their fly day every day. That but I guess I guess my question really yeah. was, I mean, is it clear to everybody that it's your fly day? Yeah. Or can you be undercover? You can be undercover. Sure, sure. Yeah, you don't sprout wings. Good question. You don't sprout wings. You just fly. Although I could change it. I'm open to changing that. So when you're talking to Mary, it sounds like you're very confident about your vision. Yeah. But then when Catherine makes a suggestion, you're like, sure, I could do that. I want an author who has a very clear vision of his uh, story. I want somebody who is not going to change it no matter what an eel says, even an eel as convincing as Catherine, I'm out. Okay. I think that there's a really good foundation for a following here, and I see a theme park. So I'm in. I will offer you the best engineered eighth grade paper airplane. Hmm. To write this. Yes. Mary, is there a counter offer? A Jolly Rancher I found in my coat pocket. Is it wrapped? No. I will take it. And now, your second contestant, Mike. Hi, Yils. I'm Mike. Uh, hey. Welcome. Welcome. Mike. I have an idea for a screenplay. It's called Time Flies. An inventor creates time travel. He's a Jack Black type figure. If we can't get him, we go Galifianakis. Can't get him, Josh Gad. Okay. What he's trying to do is go back to the past to rewrite a wrong. I picture a great flood or a fire or some natural disaster that swept through his town, hurt his family, maybe made his town depressed and the neighboring town thrive. But he knows it wasn't his grandfather's fault. Maybe his grandfather forgot to tether a llama and it got loose and knocked over a lamp. Anyway, the town burns. So this guy goes back into the past and he's there to right the wrong. He's there like seven days before the fire happens. And he befriends his grandfather and they try all these techniques to tether the 
llama. And hilarity ensues because the llama is always working his way out of the tether. And the llama is okay, always... Okay, I'm going to stop you. Yeah. Llama? Yeah. Isn't that a little Napoleon Dynamite? Thought of that can be an emu. Okay, so the day comes and... And this Josh Gad character realizes he's got to shoot the llama. Like, he's got to shoot the emu. It's the only way out. He's got to save the town. So he screws up his courage early in the morning, right at dawn. He walks to the llama emu paddock. And there's his granddad. And the granddad's there smiling. And the emu is perfectly harnessed with this, like, glowing uh, harness contraption, the likes of which Josh Gad has never seen. And there, standing next to his grandfather, is this immaculate-looking, well-coiffed guy, it's like Jude Law meets Dermot Mulrooney's hair with John Hamm's chin. And the grandfather says, oh, this is Trevor. He sold me this newfangled device. And Josh Gad looks at it, and it contains polymers he's never seen. He says, well, Trevor, where, where'd you get this? Trevor says, where I come from, it's common. A place called Palo Alto. And then Josh Gad says, wait a minute. This is 1884. Stanford's not even been established. Palo Alto is a cow pasture, farmlands in Northern California. And then Trevor looks a little surprised and says, but where I come from, it's the site of cutting-edge research facilities, Palo Alto, India. Turns out this guy is also a time traveler from the 22nd century. So the time, our Josh Gad schlumpy time traveler guy has been out-time-traveled by this more perfect version of a time traveler. And then, of course, they have to solve a problem. And I envision a way where only Josh Gad's 21st century, something about being in the 21st century, will help him. And the way I am figuring it is that the Trevor guy, he just can't take any insults or critiques or mean, meanness, like the uh, viruses or whatever, those small bugs that killed the war, war of the world's beasts. Anyway, so Trevor is almost felled by anyone being mean to him. And because Josh Gad has been on the internet, he's like built up these muscles and he could get through criticism and he saves the day. Now, I have to tell you guys, the backstory on this is I was watching Back to the Future. And there are so many, now Back to the Future is about a guy who travels to the past and there's all these anachronisms. But at one point, and this happens a few points, at one point, uh, Marty McFly says, it's a rerun. And everyone around the table says, what's a rerun? And I turned to my kids and I said, do you guys know what a rerun is? And they didn't because it was an anachronism then and now it's an anachronism. It's like a double anachronism both ways. So I wanted to have a time traveler out time traveled by this time traveler. What do you think? So your kids have never seen What's Happening? <laughs> they, no, but they could dance like rerun. Is Dermot Mulrooney's hair attached to the project? It's not even attached to Dermot Mulrooney. If we can get Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in. Yes, he's he's like Josh Gad Light. Exactly. L- literally. Like, exactly. Yeah. And Tom Hardy, then I would consider it maybe. Oh, would Tom Hardy be the perfect futuristic guy? Yeah. Okay. I got to say, I really like the concept, but it doesn't sound like you finished your screenplay. I haven't finished the screenplay, but I do have this. I I also, from what I know about screenplays, you got this great idea and all they do is buy the idea and fuck with it anyway. So I'm really pitching the idea. Emus are hot this year, but I'm really worried about litigation from the O'Leary family of Chicago. Yeah. I know those guys are, you know, they're litigious. Yeah. I'm out. I'm in. I want to meet Tom Hardy. I will give you the novelization of Back to the Future 2. Is it dog-eared? Does it have your notes in the margins? It has marginalia, no dog ears. Mary, counteroffer? I would like to retroactively become out before Josh Levine. That's how much I don't want to have to do in this movie. <laughs> Catherine, I'll take your offer. And now, your final contestant, Mike. 
Fields. My name's Mike Pesca. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Great to see you, Mike. Here is my idea. It's an app. Uber for boomerangs. Boomber. Here's how it works. You have a stick. Boomber searches your area, an area equal to your arm strength, to find another person with a stick. You throw your stick at them, and in an appropriate amount of time, the person with the other stick throws it to you. It's like a boomerang, but it's an app. So it's a dog. No, because they throw the stick at you. Uh-huh. I have a couple questions about okay. that. First, uh, is it only for sticks? I think for liability's sake, you wouldn't want to go something sharper or heavier than a stick. Okay. And why does the other person have to uh, have a stick? Couldn't they just throw your stick back to you? They could, but it wouldn't be as a pure disruption play. And we're trying to disrupt the boomerang space. I didn't think I would ever say this, but this was actually worse than Mike and the other Mike. Those, those guys were both versions of me because time traveling, by the way. But okay. I'm out. I'm out. So isn't this just Tinder with sticks? I thought of that, but actually that's another app I have. Boombinder. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson has an idea for a time travel movie told from the perspective of the clock and the time machine. Just producer Chris Berube has been studying eels, their social cohesion, their particular mores. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has this pitch. All right, listen to this. Pre-All-Star, pre-NBA All-Star game contest, all the NBA players about to do the slam dunk competition pitch their ideas for dunks to Kobe, Spud Webb, Dr. J, Dunk Tank. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has just greenlit Dunk Tank. The gist, working on a sequel to Fly Day, invisibility moment. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.